Welcome, everyone, to Authors on the Air. I'm your host, Pam Stack. We're proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I want to wish all my female friends um, happy Women's History Month, or as we're saying on the network this week, uh, this month, happy uh, Women's Her Story Month. Um, this month, I will have all new to me female writers who will be populating my my studio for the next four weeks. Um, my second guest of uh, Women's History Month is Joni M. Fisher. She is an, a very interesting woman who has who earned her first check by writing at age 16 by winning a national poetry contest. I have got to talk to every single one of my female friends about writing poetry when they're a teenager. Most of it's that angsty stuff, so I've got to find out how much Joni won <laughs> and what her poetry was about. Um, she also, she, she did um, earned a BA in journalism with a minor in theater history. And while reporting for the arts beat for um, an Indiana student newspaper, she interviewed Marcel Marceau, which I've got to hear about because for those of you who don't know who Marcel Marceau was, he was a pantomimist. He did not speak. So this should be very interesting. Um, Joni also served on the, <laughs> Board of American Institute of Banking and the Board of the American Society for Training and Development. She taught English classes at the American Institute of Banking. She also is a pilot who got an instrument rating in 2000 where she and her husband fly between their home here in sunny South Florida or Central Florida for Joni and North Carolina. It's my pleasure to welcome Joni Fisher to the show. Joni, welcome finally. Finally. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for having me. <laughs> it's my pleasure. Um, I should say, after all that, that your current book is called West of Famous. It is the Compass Crimes book number three. Um, and I like this book an awful lot because it was the story that I never expected. So before we go any further with your bio and talk about all those things I'm curious about, will you please give everyone a little hint of what, who this character is and what happens to her in West of Famous. Uh, uh, the Martina is in graduate school at Oxford, and she wins a contest singing, um, imitating a pop star. And from that, she gets offered a job because she also looks like the pop star. So she gets a job uh, as a body double. Mm -hmm. And during that time... She is traveling around with the body double, with the uh, star's entourage, boyfriend, friends, and that, all that. And mm -hmm. while she's while she's posing as this other person, um, she gets kidnapped. It's such a great premise. It really is such a great premise. I love it. Um, I. You know, I was reading your reviews, and people just really love this story. You have a lot of really big fans um, who've not only read this book but the others. And you know, across the board, you've got some five-star ratings. Uh, people are are just loving it, and uh, you have woven characters from the other books into each other. All the characters are kind of somehow touched, motivated. They're inspired. They're friends. They're family in all of your books for Compass Crimes. Is that true? Yes, it's, it's an ensemble cast. We don't have the same main character like they do in a lot of series where the main character mm -hmm. goes through different 
different adventures or different things, events. Um, in my case, all the characters actually met in the prequel, which is North of the Killing Hand. And okay. They, they affect each other's lives. And in, then in South of Justice, um, that's one of the spinoff characters from the first book. And West of Famous is the best friend of another person in, that's in the other book. It basically, all the stories, I'm working on the East book right now, um, mm-hmm. they touch on the compass points, but they also feature strong female characters. Yes, um, it's a, it's a know, joy to read a strong female character who really fights for herself and for those she loves and people around her. Congratulations on that, Joni. Thank you. Yeah, they, in each of the stories, um, a woman's life is turned upside down because of a crime. And then the stories, what they do about that. I love it. I love it because they become very empowered. And, and to me, that's a really great read. Having been a, a victim of a violent crime and overcome it, um, you know, I like reading strong women characters. Uh, I think that women are gratuitously used for sex and violence in a lot of thrillers. And, um, and you know, it seems none of them survive. And that is troublesome to me in many ways because many well, of us yeah, do survive. We do survive and we thrive afterward. Yeah, but we're kind of led to believe that we have to wait for Prince Charming to rescue us. I mean, all the yeah. stories that we're raised with right, are right. basically, you know, the women are these objects that get hurt, that get trapped, and they wait for a man to rescue them. Um, right. You know, the fairy tales that we're raised with, I, they, they kind of bother me because they don't show women empowering themselves or helping each other. They, they seem more like props. You know, like Indians used to be in Westerns. You know, they were something yes. that cowboys shot at. And right. I don't think that's a really accurate portrayal. I mean, it, we have women issue. queens. We've had women right. in government. We have women lawyers, doctors, everything. So Everywhere. I think right. our, our literature needs to reflect that empowerment more. So sitting on my my uh, credenza where I keep my headphones while they're charging, I have a little plaque that says, the real story goes like this. Once upon a time, she found her own golden slipper, quit looking for Prince Charming, and lived happily ever after. So you can <laughs> probably relate to that better than most people, you know, because it's true. I I read in them uh, in kind of the paranormal and fantasy genre quite a bit, and a lot of them are, you know, um, unfairy tales and where the woman is her own heroine, and um, you know, I like yeah. that quite a bit. To me, those are a lot of fun to to read those books, and kind of life affirming, <laughs> to be honest with you. So, you know, I yeah. when I was reading your when I was reading your bio. It seems like you've always been interested in reading, in the arts. Even though you worked in banking for a long time, you always were, were taking classes or teaching classes. Everything you do has something to do with writing. So you even taught report writing at the police academy and began freelance writing. Um, <laughs> yeah. ha, 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 how did that happen? What made you so interested in writing? You must have been a reader all your life. Yes, yes. Um, we, we had like a tiny black and white television. I think I was 13 before I saw The Wizard of Oz in color, and it just blew me away because I'd always seen it on a black and white television. Right. So we read a lot, and 
we, we everywhere we moved, we had a library card, and that was sort of our sanctuary, a place to go. Absolutely. Because back, my mom was working on her her college degree, and she became a lawyer. But during all those after school hours, we could either hang out at home by ourselves, my brothers and I, or we could go to the library. And the library was not only a safer place, it was much more fun. Sure. Um, you got to pick and choose anything you wanted to read and your imagination soars when you're a child who reads. I think it connects yes, you to the world. Was a, in was an advocate yeah. for us. These, I mean, oh, I would bring home books that were beyond my grade level. And the, the librarian at school would say, I'm sorry, you can't read in that section. It's like, well, I've read all these others, you know. I, I, right. I've got to move up to the next grade because I've read these. And my mom would come in and say, she can read anything in this whole library. Do you understand? And after that, you know, we all had free reign. It is true that, that you know, education is so important and reading is the keystone for everything. It, it's the benchmark. It is how your life um, intertwines with the rest of the world. You become a more compassionate person when you read. Yes. You become more, you are literate to other cultures and other identities and, and so on. You know, you find the world and beyond when you read. So um, right. I it am forces grateful. you to see life through other, other perspectives. It really does. And, um, I, you know, I'm so glad you mentioned that your mom encouraged that because we're all about talking about women that inspire us. And, um, of course, my mom and my father both inspired me quite a bit. I'm assuming your mom is your biggest inspiration but was there someone else? Yes. Oh, lots of teachers. Um, the, the poetry contest that I won, I didn't even submit anything to. One of my English <laughs> teachers did. That's um, so interesting. She said, hey, I, I really to... like this. You were writing <laughs> angsty teenage hormone, uh, you know, driven poetry. You were actually writing real poetry at 16? Yes, yes. And um, I, I thought of poetry more like song lyrics. Right. Um, Right. I wanted it to have a certain rhythm and cadence and sound to it, not just, um, you know, iambic pentameter, but I wanted to, it didn't have to rhyme, but it had to have a rhythm. It had to have meaning. Every word had to matter. I think poetry teaches you great discipline in writing because every word yes. has to Counts. matter. It does. You are absolutely and right. And less is more. It's just right, like writing a haiku. You've got to say it all, you know, in those those couple words, and that's it. May I ask? Do you remember how much your first check was for writing, winning the poetry contest? It was fifty dollars. My God, that was a lot of and money then, for a sixteen-year-old. <laughs> yeah, well, I was working as a lifeguard at the YMCA, for, so for me, this was quite a few hours of work. That you know, I got paid wow. for just writing 16, 16 lines. It's like, hey, that this is not a bad deal. And then wow. a year later. Um, when I was still in high school, um, they were going to put them all in an anthology, and they sent me another 50 bucks. So I said, hey, I like this gig. Very good. Now, I've, I have to ask about you inter- interviewing Marcel Marceau. Um, I, I had to chuckle <laughs> when, I was, when I was putting the show together and I was reading your bio, and I thought, there's got to be a story behind that. Can you tell me a little bit about what you remember and how you came, it came about that you were interviewing him? I was working at the Indiana Daily Student, which is a daily student newspaper. Um, the campus was 33,000 people then. I have no idea how many it is now. And I was on the arts desk. 
and everyone who wanted to be in journalism was on the sports desk, you know, except for right. people like me who would rather do the arts. And this came up, and no one else on the staff knew who he was. And I said, oh, my God, I'm taking this. So I had been studying French for three years. So I had conversational French, you know, just basic things. Yes, I and understand what you're saying. So um, his, his English was better than my French, but I thought, you know, I'll give it a whirl. So we did it partly in French and partly in English, and he was there to talk about the arts and how his art of mime was sort of dying out. Yeah, and it was. he gave a demonstration to the theater department, and um, he also met with the people in the journalism school, and that's when I got to interview him. And he was perfectly charming. He was just very gracious, uh, soft-spoken, and funny. I, I bet. just thought it was just a delight to meet him and to be able to say that I talked to the most famous mime in the world. You know, I, I think you only see mimes now. I mean, I've, I don't know if you've had a chance to go down to Key West since you've been in Florida, but on Mallory Square at the at the pier, um, there are mimes down there. And I know you see them occasionally, maybe at festivals or, um, you know, in areas where there are a lot of tourists. But no one was quite like Marcel Marceau. I'm so glad to hear that he was as charming as he seemed. Um, he was really terrific. Um Yes. What motivated you to decide to start writing novels? Um, because I love to read them so much. Um, and there were certain stories that I wanted to read that I couldn't find. And ah. it took me a while to find my own voice. But I thought, you know, I would really love to leave a legacy of some really great stories. And I wanted to have stories that had strong women in them because I wasn't finding those. I didn't find them in childhood fairy tales. I didn't find them in middle school reading. I didn't find them much in high school. So that's really what I wanted to do was to show, you know, women empowering, you know, taking control of their lives, even though bad things happen to them. You know, my favorite movie um, is probably the Drew Barrymore version of Cinderella. Yes. And there's a scene in there where she rescues Prince Charming from the right. gypsies. Right. And from that moment on, it's like, there it is. That's the message I want to get in my books. There you go. I, I love those stories, too. And, um, and, and I know exactly what you're talking about, too. I know exactly the film, and I love that. Um, it, it was really good. Um, you you say that your mom is your woman of choice for inspiring you. You had a lot of teachers. Um, what does your mom think about your books? Um, she likes them a lot. I think she is a frustrated writer. Um, she wanted to, to write novels. She wrote one and took this long course, a correspondence course, while she was taking college courses at night. And wow. she really loved it. And I got a, I, she handed me all these books about how to write, how to plot, how to write dialogue, all these things. And I was going through them and I found her manuscript and she was mortified because she was so open and honest about dating, you know, the people she dated when she was a single mom with three kids because my father left when I was five and they got divorced. So she had a lot going on. She was holding down two jobs and going to school at night and somehow she found time to write this novel. And I was in the third chapter before she caught me, and I was laughing so hard. That's what gave me away. Uh, she was really a great writer. 
And I think when I told her I wanted to be a writer, she, she cried. And I thought, okay, great. She thinks I'm going to be living under a bridge one day. And she goes, you know, <laughs> when, when I was growing up, I was told I could be a nurse, a teacher, a wife, right. a stewardess, or a, a secretary. Right. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, and she goodness. said, these, these were my choices, and I didn't want any of them. I wanted to be a lawyer. So the fact that you want to do something that is, you know, still, back then it was still a male-dominated uh, industry. Sure. I said, yeah, I'd really love to do that. And she goes, okay, then don't get an English degree. They're lovely, but you have to be able to support yourself, get a journalism degree. So I did. And I learned wow. the discipline of writing in addition to yes. the creativity. Sure, you have to you have to write very succinct sentences. Uh, the the what was it the five W's and the H? You know, you had to get all that in in the yes. first the first two sentences of your story had to contain all that information, and so that gives you a, a sense of proportionality with with how much you have to have action in everything you're doing. Not that you can't take a breather, right. but if your book's not moving forward and that action could be emotional, could be dialogue, could be act, you know, physical action, but you still have to keep it moving all the time. So I applaud you for yes. following. You've, you've got your mom's DNA in you for sure. Yes. And, and I, I appreciate it. I, um, as a, uh, I know you're a, a victim advocate. Um, yes. And um, in West of Famous, there was, part of it that I just wasn't, it just wasn't clicking in the first draft. And I realized what I needed to do is I needed to have my main character go through the stages of grief. Right. Because as a kidnap victim, she is looking at a limited time span. Right. Between when they're going to discover she's a fraud or that she's going to, you know, be traded for money or killed. So she's right. looking at, she knows when the deadline is. So, I had her, the reader may not be aware of this, but each chapter where she appears, she's going through a different stage of grief, whether it's denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. Right. And that extra layer of emotion and coping um, really made the book, in my mind, uh, more solid and believable and relatable to people. Right. Because we've all gone through stages of grief. We've lost somebody or we've been through a tragedy. and. They oh, can yeah. recognize with those, even if they can't name them and label them, they exactly. feel it. And here's an interesting thing, because you mentioned that I'm a victim advocate, and I have been for many years since I was a victim of a violent crime. But um, one of the things that we know about women who recover from a trauma, whether it's emotional, physical, whatever it happens to be, accidental, um, we know who's going to survive versus who's going to struggle by what their own experiences are and how they respond to trauma in their past life. So, and what kind of a support system they have. So, you know, you built your character very authentically. And so, and I appreciate that very much. Um, And, and it was a terrific read. Thank you for that. Thank you. Uh, You're welcome. I want to talk to you now about before I let you, I know I'm running out of time and I hope you don't mind, but I feel greedy with you right now. You are also (laughs) a pilot. Tell me how that came about. Was your husband first a pilot and then talked you into it or was it you talking him into it? Um, In this case, he started taking lessons and then after he got his license, he took me up for a ride, hoping that he would win me over and this would be wonderful fun. We could do this for the rest of our lives. He made the huge mistake of thinking like a guy. 
So <laughs> took me out for the first flight, and to show me that how safe the plane was, he decided to demonstrate a stall. Now, oh, no. if if you go on a commercial flight, you don't want the the pilot to show you how to handle an emergency uh, procedure. Right. You never want to have to do that, right? Right, right. But this is what he did on our first flight. And I would oh, have no. beat him senseless except for the fact that he was the only one that knew how to land the plane. I was so mad. I was so furious and scared at the same time. I, I, it was really the wrong way to approach this because if he had taken me out for a perfectly beautiful flight on a, ha- on a happy day, you know, no gusty winds, no sure. rain. Right. You know, I had to have a nice flight. I probably would have started lessons the next day. As it was, it took me months to get back in the plane. And I went I, in, I didn't even tell him I was I didn't even tell him I was going to do it, but I went out with his instructor and I said, "I need to know just enough to get this plane back on the ground because I know he's going to buy a plane and I know he really loves this." But that's all I need to know. And so it's called the pinch hitters course. It's, you basically land, you just practice landing the plane, talking on the radio, learning the aerodynamics of what keeps the plane in the air and what makes it comes down. And, you know, we landed this plane about 65 times. And each time my instructor would do less and less because with dual controls, he's holding onto the yoke and the rudder. Sure. You know, he's he's right. basically landing it and I'm helping, you know, I'm holding on to feel what he's doing. But by about the 30th landing, I look over and he's got his arms crossed and his feet off the rudders. And I realized I landed this thing and we lived. So that's wow. what really got me hooked. Was, and then I told my husband, I, I really want to get my license. And you'd think I'd handed him the publisher's clearinghouse check. He was so excited. <laughs> and so who, do, who flies the plane? Do you, like, does he fly up to North Carolina and you fly back? I mean, who, you know, who determines that? We have that? to take turns. Yeah, we have to take turns or it gets ugly. And since we're both instrument rated, yeah, we're both <laughs> instrument rated, so it's just half and half. Um, however, he has uh, about 800 or 900 more hours than I do. So uh, if the conditions are really horrible, um, he's better at landing gusty crosswind landings than I am. And there was one time we were flying into uh, an airport in Texas, and we caught the tail end of a hurricane, and we were mm. getting 40-knot gusts. And it was scaring, scaring me really bad. And it was my turn to land, and they closed the airport that we had scheduled to land on. So oh, I had geez. to find an alternate, which kind of rattled me. And we had my mom, his mom in the back of the plane. You know, I really don't want to mess this up and, you know, damage the plane because I, I do have some experience, but not as much as he does. So right. I did what's called good cockpit management. And I said, look, I can land this plane, but I know you can land it better under these conditions are you okay landing it from the right seat? And he said, yes. And I think that made him feel more confident in me that I knew my limits and I knew that he was better at this. So you sound like an empowered woman woman to me, Joni, because, you know, first of all, he made a mistake taking you up on the first flying trip and it didn't, you know, it, it didn't give you any big thrill. So he learned a lesson then. And then you went and figured out if he's going to do that crap again, I'm going to make sure I'm safe. So that's a, another thing. And then you recognize that who is the better pilot under these conditions and had no problem whatsoever turning over control to the other pilot, be it male or female. Right. Good for you. Good for you. Well, so you really, I, I have a, I have a very, very rare 
um, husband because most of the people that I've met where the husband and wife both fly, the wife uh-huh. usually gives up after a year. Really? Because the wife, yeah, the woman, girlfriend, wife, whatever, usually gets treated like a voice-activated autopilot where the guy tells her uh-huh. what to do. So he's actually flying from the right seat, like, she, like she's just an autopilot that he's activating by command. And that's very frustrating. But my husband is really patient and kind and understanding. And he has, I mean, it takes a lot for a guy to say, okay, I'm going to sit here. If you're in the left seat, you're piloting command. Whatever right. you want me to do, I will do. But I will sit here right. and I will not try to fiddle with the controls or tell you what to do. Right. And it takes a lot of restraint for a guy to do that. Um, I was flying a friend of ours up to a place in Georgia where he was setting up a new emergency room. And because he had never flown in a small plane before, he's asking me a lot of questions and he's very nervous. And we're overflying the field that we're going to land on. Well, we, you overfly the field and then you fly parallel to the field. It's called downwind. Right. Then you fly base and then you fly final. So you kind of make this square pattern to get into the airport. Well, because we're going perpendicularly over the air, over the runway, he grabs the yoke and he pushes the yoke forward and, and the Uh-oh. nose of the plane goes down. And, you know, he's never flown a plane before. Well, we needed to go down anyway, so I let him go for a little while. And I go, so you, you want to land this? And he goes, of course I can't land this. I, I don't know how to fly. And I said, then you might want to let go of the yoke. He looked down like his hands were not his. And he pulled them away like he had no idea how this happened. But this is how guys react. I mean, how many times do you see a guy on the back of a Harley with a woman driving? Right, or even even in a car. Even in a car, it's very rare to yeah. see, you know, unless somebody's disabled or injured or whatever. Uh, in the normal course of the day, you very rarely see the female driving and the male sitting there behi- behaving himself and not, you know, side seat driving, telling her what to do. Turn okay. here, turn now, there, now you know. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll take it up 10,000 feet. Right. <laughs> and, you know, try to imagine that that guy's going to be comfortable you know, right. it takes a pretty rare guy to be comfortable in that situation. So I you are absolutely blessed. right. And yes, you we are. share the airplane with another couple, John and Susan Sugar, and they both fly. And they also have the same really great relationship in the cockpit. So, oh, how fabulous. You know, it's, yeah, they're great. Oh, wonderful. Joni, uh, I'm running out of time. But I wish I could stay and talk to you, but I want everyone to know what your website is, first of all. It's uh, com. And where can we find you on social media? Um, I'm on Twitter. I'm learning Instagram. I think I have like 18 posts. And I'm on Facebook and Goodreads and Library okay. Thing. Okay. You know, and and uh, NetGalley. <laughs> who would you like to give a sh- – what wonderful woman would you like to give a shout-out to? Uh, Donna Kelly. Okay. Just tell her what you got to say. Donna, you're working on, I think, your seventh book, and this is the book of your heart that you've been working on forever, and I am so proud of you, and I can't wait to read it. There you go. My guest today is Joni M. Fisher. Her book is West of Famous. You can find her on the Internet at JoniMFisher.com. And please, when you go buy a book and you enjoy it, leave a message in the form of a review for the writer. It doesn't matter how short it is. Um, Amazon is actually changing things so you can kind of just star the review and just say, this was a great book. If that's all it is, that helps. 
Um, I want to yes. say thank you to another fabulous woman writer today, Joni Fisher. And Joni, you and I will be talking again soon, I, I suspect, you know. <laughs> thank you, thank for, you so much. <laughs> thank you for being with me. And I hope you have a terrific, terrific book launch for the next one. Thank you so much. I appreciate it, Pam. You're so welcome. Bye-bye. And that's our show for today, folks. I want to say thank you. Happy Women's History Month. And thank you, Mom and Dad. I'll see you later. Mm-hmm.